If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. Follow along, if you would, as I read Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim in the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The Sermon on the Mount tells us about the kingdom of heaven and what it means to be a part of that kingdom. The question is, how are we supposed to think if we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven? What is to be our worldview? Worldview is a person's, it's a collection of his or her thoughts presuppositions, convictions about reality which represent his or her total outlook on life. Everybody has a worldview, uh, but I think many, if not most, go through life without ever thinking. They're completely unaware of the presuppositions or the assumptions that they hold about the makeup of the world. Because these assumptions operate at an unconscious level, They remain unidentified and unexamined. People fail to recognize how that their worldview governs every aspect of their life. The intellectual dimension, the social dimension, the physical dimension even, economic, moral, and all. Every aspect of our life is governed by our worldview. Because this is the case, oftentimes it is difficult to examine a worldview. Um, The story is told, a joke, where an old fish is swimming toward two young fish, um, and he says to the boys, how's the water today? And they just swim past him, and one says to the other, what's water? I mean, the thing that we are in all the time, we don't think about, and therefore to sort of step back and examine it is somewhat difficult. Some have suggested that the answer is, in fact, to answer a series of questions. And I follow the lead of others in this, uh, James Sire in his book, Universe Next Door, and others, that if you answer these questions, you begin to have sort of a framework of your worldview. What I'm trying to do in this series is to show what the assumptions, what the presupposition should be if we think in terms of a kingdom worldview. If we belong to the kingdom of heaven, we should think with a kingdom worldview. I'm convinced that many Christians, maybe most Christians, do not have a kingdom worldview. That is, their basic assumptions are not biblical. I mentioned in the first sermon in the series, uh, Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And he has as his first principle Intuition comes first, strategic reasoning second. Uh, 
So it's these assumptions that come first, and then you know, we begin to put our thoughts, I think, in a coherent way. And I would argue that the case can be made that for many Christians, they know doctrine, they know theology, that's strategic reasoning, they're not as clear on intuition, that is, the assumptions. My hope is to correct that by pointing out what our basic assumptions ought to be. So far, we've dealt with two questions. As I said, I think that the way to deal with worldview is to answer questions. The first question was, what is first cause? First cause being that which comes before everything else. When you go back to the very, very, very beginning, what was there? Um, first cause cannot have any beginning, because if it has a beginning, then there's something before that. Okay? First cause is cause, and everything else that comes from that is, in fact, the effect. Um, for me, the issue should be, was first cause personal or impersonal? And I would argue that the only kind of cause that could be a true first cause would have to be personal. There would have to be personal agency. If we assume that our world, the universe, had a beginning, what was there before the universe? And what was the cause of the universe that caused it to come into effect? Was it personal or impersonal? Well, the scriptures are clear. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is, God is first cause. The effect is the world. That's the first question. The second question is, what is the nature of creation? And one of the issues we talked about is the issue of vocabulary that we are very comfortable with, and we find it in Scripture. Reality referred to as creation. But oftentimes it gives us, I think, a wrong sense that it's sort of a finished product, when in fact Jesus said, my father's at work to this very day. So as difficult as it might be, we might better speak in terms of creating, that God is always at the work of creating. Well, over time, creation was replaced in vocabulary by the word nature, and then later on by reality. Um, one of the dangers of speaking of nature is, in fact, you don't have to talk about a creator. But when you speak of creating or creation, there must, in fact, be a creator. As I mentioned, there are three metaphors that emerged during the scientific revolution uh, to describe nature. Not creation, but nature. The book, the clock, laws of governing. And as I said, I think it is the clock, the metaphor of the clock, that had the greatest impact. And the result is everything now is seen in mechanistic terms. Uh, Ken Myers from Mars Hill Audio Journal said, virtually all aspects of social life, personal relationships, and even religious experiences are commonly imagined in mechanistic terms. Lil would say technological terms, technique, steps, steps, steps. What this does, by the way, is it gets rid of first cause as being personal. Now first cause can, in fact, be quite impersonal. And the result of this is that creation, well, let me start over. One of the results of this is that creation, as we see it, is now a finished product, and the creator is absent. He built this just fantastically complicated clock we call the universe, wound it up, and then he left. 
left us on our own. And so this clock of the universe is just going on and on, and slowly, slowly, it was winding down. And this also means that since he left, he's not involved with the day-to-day things. He's not involved in our lives at all. He's, he's left town. He's gone. He's left the building. Okay. This, in many ways, people would say, well, this allows God to be transcendent. That's true. But it means he's also not eminent, that he's not here among us. If we are to have a kingdom worldview, how are we to view creation or creating? Two things. We are to view it as a gift and we are to view it as a blessing. Today we come to the third question. Uh, what is a human being? As I've told you, this is the first lecture. Uh, the first lecture I give in the university is on worldview. And I tell my students, this is the big one. Okay, This is the big question. And by God's grace, we will not fully answer it today. We'll continue to look at it in the weeks to come. But it is the big question. What is a human being? When you look at Western worldviews, two subjects have dominated. One is theology, the study of God. The other is anthropology, the study of man. In the study of God, we find debates over, does God exist? Uh, What are his attributes? If he does exist, what are his characteristics? What is his relationship to creation? And what is his relationship to us as human beings? When it comes to anthropology, the study of man, among the subjects that are discussed are um, what is human nature? What is the nature of human nature, if you wish? Um, What is the effect of human nature on our actions? If we are basically good, do we do these things? If we have a propensity to evil, do we do other things? Uh, What is our relationship to the physical environment? What is the cause of evil and suffering? Does human history have any meaning? These are the questions that people discuss in the field of anthropology. At different points in human history, one has dominated over the other. In in certain points, uh, in the medieval period, for example, we see that theology has dominated. But in other times, like the Greek period, the classical period, and in the modern world, anthropology, in fact, has dominated. And the result is a man-centered view of things anthropocentric, that's based on humanity itself. If you focus, if, if in fact anthropology becomes the, the lens through which you look at all things, um, what are some of the conclusions you reach as to what it means to be a human being? Well, at least in the modern era. Let me re- give you a couple ideas. One is from the late Stephen Hawking. The human race is just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet. Um, I asked my students, what do you think would happen if you went down on Wilshire Boulevard and said to someone, walked up to him and said, hey, you're scum. And yet Stephen Hawking says it, and people are like, ooh, how profound. The historian Carl Becker, from a strictly scientific viewpoint, said that human beings must be viewed as little more than a chance deposit on the surface of the world, carelessly thrown up between two ice ages by the same forces that rust iron and ripen corn. You know what causes rust? That's what caused us. You know what ripens corn? That's what caused us. Certainly a disturbing view of what it means to be human. And yet the issue, 
What does it mean to be human continues to be asked. Nicholas Carr in his book, The Glass Cage, writes, automation confronts us with the most important question of all, what does human being mean? In the pre-modern era, the issue was on existence, human being. Philosophical terms, it's the ontological argument, okay? In the modern period, this shifted, and now human beings are products, okay? The human being has come to be seen as purely material, purely physical, because it's a mechanistic universe. God's left us. And so human beings are seen as products. By the way, in the never-ending discussion or debate, is it nature or nurture? You know, why are we the way we are? Is it because of our genetic code? Is it because of our environment? If you stop and think of it, they're both in the same arena. They're both saying, I'm a product. I'm either a product of my DNA or I'm a product of my environment, but the human being is seen simply as a product. In the postmodern era where we find ourselves, the human being is seen as a construct. The physical becomes an obstacle. It stands in the way of one's perception. Therefore, we find in our world today what for us may be very disturbing for someone who is physically male to say, I identify as female. That is to say, who a human being is, is constructed by the individual. So you're no longer a product. That stands in the way. Now you are, in fact, a construct. People now are speaking not of postmodern, but of post-human. And I think more commonly we begin to hear people speak of the transhuman. One author put it, in the post-human age, humans will no longer be controlled by nature. Instead, they will be the controllers of nature. Directed evolution has become the goal. And there's more, and the Lord willing, we will talk about this in the weeks to come. One writer put it this way, while sex may be presented today as little more than a recreational activity, sexuality is presented as that which lies at the very heart of what it means to be an authentic person. You want to know what does it mean to be human? Well, we need to talk about your sexuality. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. What are we to think? What are the assumptions? What are the presuppositions? What are these intuitive things that we know or should know about what it means to be human? In Genesis 1, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And so it was. And then in more specific terms, in Genesis 2, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So to be human is to be a creature. And to be human is to have a body. 
Um, creation is a gift. Creation is blessing. That includes our bodies. We may not always feel that way. We may feel trapped by our bodies. And certainly in post-human and transhuman views, the body is just like, it's in the way. That we need somehow to transcend it and to be able to download our consciousness perhaps into a computer so that we can live forever. The body just gets in the way. So what are we to make of these two accounts in Genesis 1 and 2? First of all, that God is the ultimate presupposition underlying the biblical view of what is a human being. First cause is important. It's all important. God is the one who created man. Okay. Secondly, the fundamental assertion about God creating means that we did not come about by chance, by blind chance, by purposeless forces of nature, we might call them, but it is a personal God who in fact created humanity and continues to do so, by the way. It isn't just he created Adam and Eve and then he's like, okay, it's, you know, it's up to you guys to reproduce and you know, fill the earth and all that. It is God. David tells us in Psalm 139 that he was knit together in his mother's womb. It is God who is at work. God is a personal first cause. Let us make man in our image. And, by the way, this image, which theologians call imago dei, the image of God, is universal, that it is both male and female. Um, In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. We are created in the likeness, in the image of the creator. This is mentioned three times in the book of Genesis. We've read the first in chapter 1. The second is in chapter 5 as it gives sort of the genealogy beginning with Adam. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and when they were created, he called them man. The third time this is mentioned is after the flood. When God says basically if somebody kills a human being, then they must also be put to death. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, God has God made man. Jesus reaffirms this. This is found in Matthew 23. Uh, the Pharisees are trying to trick him. They send the Herodians to find out if they can somehow... I don't know if it's the Herodians, but his enemies are trying to trick him into making a pro-Roman Statement so that people will turn against him. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to entrap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with Herodians. They're the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know you are a man of integrity, that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? If Jesus says yes, then the people are going to turn against him because the Romans are the occupiers, the oppressors. If he says no, then they can turn him over to the Romans. This guy says we shouldn't pay taxes. But, but Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. 
Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. The inscription on the denarius, which was a coin, that's one day's wages for a day laborer. The image on it is that of Caesar. And the inscription is that of Caesar. Well, what has the image of God? We do. We are made in the image of God. So we give to Caesar what has his inscription. We give to God what has his image. That's us. Now, what it means to be made in the image of God is not explained explicitly in Scripture. There are certain implications, uh, particularly in light of what is known as the cultural mandate, that we, in fact, are to rule. We are to govern. God has put us here to be in charge of creation. We represent him. Made in his image, we are his representatives here on this planet. We are caretakers. We are vice regents. We are stewards of creation. We are both, and this is important, rulers and servants. We don't simply tell creation what to do. We are also here to serve creation as well. Because God is the creator and sustainer of creation... All those who bear his image, whether they acknowledge him or not, they are accountable to him. He has put us here. He has given us a job. We have a job to do, and we are accountable to him. To be a human is, in fact, it's a heavy responsibility. We have great responsibilities if we are made in the image of God. To fulfill these responsibilities, two things are required. One is vocation, and the other is devotion. Let's consider vocation. We've talked about this in the past, but let's review a bit. Vocation, by the way, is more familiar, but I prefer calling, because vocation is like a finished product. Here is your vocation. Whereas calling gives us a real sense that God is always calling us. He's always speaking to us. It's not like, okay, Damon, you do this, and I'll, I'll see you later when you die or when you come to heaven, but... You're on your own. Not at all. He's with us every step of the way. In the same way that I think creating is preferred uh, preferred to creation, I'd say calling is preferred to vocation. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul does something quite amazing. And again, this is review for many of you. Um, He starts out by saying, each one of you should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. In other words, this is your calling, okay? And then he says, everyone should remain in the calling wherein he was called. He uses calling in two different ways there. The second one, that's very religious. We, we get that. When God called me to be his son, by the Holy Spirit, he called me to be his son. We get that. But Paul uses the exact same word for God speaking to us, giving us a place in life, and telling us what to do. That is calling. So the second time he mentions it is salvation. The second refers to life itself. And he ends in verse number 24. Brothers, each man as responsible to God, we are accountable, should remain in the situation or in the calling God called him to. What do we mean by calling? One of the most significant works on calling was done over 500 years ago uh, by an Englishman, William Perkins. Uh, 
He wrote a treatise on this, um, a treatise of the vocations or the callings of men with the sorts and kinds of them and the right use thereof. By the way, people used to use really long titles for whatever they wrote. And he gives this definition. A calling is a certain kind of life ordained and imposed on men by God for the common good. A certain condition or kind of life. That is the way that we live in the world. Again, if there's calling, then there is one who calls. Okay? And yet this is a word that has been co-opted by those who are non-believers. They speak of vocation from the Latin vocare, to call, but they don't believe that there's anyone who calls. You get to choose yourself what it is that you're going to do instead of having a sense that it is God who calls. As Perkins says, it is ordained by God. It is imposed by God. And that second one makes us really uncomfortable because it makes it sound like I don't have any say in the matter. But the reality is God created us. He is working in our lives. And he has given us certain skills, certain desires, certain propensities. Um, You know, I would love to be able to paint. I can't paint. I do not have the talent. I don't have the gift. And therefore, I would say I don't have the calling to be a painter. Okay? Um, Now, if you say, Damon, I reject that. I say, no, God cannot impose anything on me. Then consider the alternatives. That your career choice is sheer chance or your career choice is the result of your own will and your own choice. And if it goes south, well, then that's on you because you made the wrong choice. And why do we have a calling? It's for the common good. It isn't just for me. It isn't for me to make a lot of money. It isn't for me to have nice things. It's for the common good. It is for my family, my neighbors, my community, my city, state, nation, for humanity. And if this is the case, then there's no such thing as a shameful calling. If someone is a janitor, can that be a calling? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because think of what a building, a hospital, an office would like, look like if there was no one to clean. It is for the common good. Perkins argued that everyone must have a calling. Everyone does have a calling. And you know he's right, because otherwise what Paul said made no sense. Paul says, you know what you were doing before you became a Christian, before God called you? Were you a blacksmith? Were you a potter? Um, Were you a seamstress? Were you a teacher? If that's where you were when God called you, then that calling came from God. It's not like, oh, before you became a Christian, you were just doing your own thing. Um, You may have been doing your own thing, but the gifts you have and the ability, that came from God himself. One side note. Vocation or calling and work are not the same. They're not synonyms, but they are inseparable. We live in a world today in which work is a four-letter word. People want to be able to have the things that they want without having to work. And this is clearly contrary to what God has intended. So there is calling, there's vocation, and then there is devotion. 
Everyone has a calling, but not everyone acknowledges that God is the creator. They do not bow to his authority. When the Lord delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, he was dealing with the people who had been enslaved for centuries. And they worshipped idols. We saw this when we were studying in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 20. Um, And God was like, okay, should I destroy these people or should I redeem them? Because they were worshiping idols. In grace, he chooses to redeem them. He brings them out of Egypt and he brings them to Sinai to tell them, this is how you're supposed to live. Okay, for centuries you've been slaves. You've, you've lived in a particular way. You didn't have any days off. There's no Sabbath, no day off. You had to work every day. You worship false gods. No, no, no. You are now my people. This is how you're supposed to live. And what does he do? He gives them the Ten Commandments. And what do we hear in the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow to them and worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Observe the Sabbath by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. It begins by saying, you must be devoted, you must worship God. You must acknowledge him as a creator. And then what are the rest of the Ten Commandments? It's calling. It's vocation. Honor your parents. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't lie. All these things. It is how we are supposed to walk as those who are made in the image of God. The last thing we see from our passages on man being created in the image of God is that we have a purpose. We've already seen that in calling. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, okay, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This is our purpose. But if we deny that God is first cause, if we deny that he created us, if we deny that he created us in his image, um, then you're going to have to go and seek your own purpose. That Whatever you do, it's going to be for whatever reason you think you should do it. Your purpose in life, that's on you. Instead of recognizing that God, in fact, has created you and given you a purpose in life. If we embrace an anthropocentric approach to things, we will be alienated from the Creator. We will seek to find alternatives to calling and devotion. And so we will do vocation. We will say to people, follow your heart. We will come up with anything else other than following God. In 1972, uh, Hubert Dreyfus wrote a book called What Computers Can't Do, The Limits of Artificial Intelligence. He taught first at MIT philosophy and then he moved to Berkeley where he finished his career. 20 years later, he wrote another book He'd written books in between, but this book was What Computers Still Can't Do, A Critique of Artificial Reason. And he argued that one of the basic problems with people doing AI is they forget that the body is an important part of what it means to be human. That somehow they think brain equals computer. So if we can just figure out how the brain works, we can make a computer. He's like, no, 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 no. 
the body is in fact important. So who is he fighting against? And, and he definitely was fighting a battle. Let me read you a quote. Why seek to become post-human? So he recognizes this whole movement toward being post-human. Certainly we can achieve much while remaining human, yet we can attain higher peaks by applying our intelligence, determination, and optimism to break out of the human chrysalis. Our bodies restrain our capabilities. This is what post-humanists say, it's this body. And trust me, as you get older and as your body betrays you, you're somewhat sympathetic to this. But the reality is to be human is to be embodied, is to have a body. God made man and breathed into him life. In our day, the body is seen as less and less important. The advent of the internet and cyberspace, you have virtual reality, so you don't have to deal with real reality. You may be thinking at this point, Damon, this is the first Sunday of Advent, and what does this have to do with Advent? Consider that to answer the question, what does it mean to be human, requires that we look at the incarnation. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Philippians 2, as Paul writes of having the mind of Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. When we studied Philippians, we saw that, in fact, there are two different words used in Greek for appearance or likeness. One is morphe, that is an essential form that never changes. The other is schema, something that, in fact, is continuously changing. Like a human being, we come into this world as babies, and then we sort of graduate to being an infant, and then a toddler, and then we preteen, and then teen, and then young adult, and so on it goes. Jesus came in the flesh, in the incarnation, as a baby, and he grew up as we do. What it means to be human, we need to look at Jesus and recognize that having a body is really important. In 1 John 4, John writes, This is how we recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. The next verse, he says, those who deny that Jesus came in the flesh are antichrist. Being human means being embodied. Otherwise, why did Jesus come in a body if in fact that's not what it means to be human? So what is a human being? Are we merely products? Is that what we would say of Jesus? Are we merely, merely constructs? Or are we someone who is made in the image of the Creator with purpose, with calling, by God's grace, with devotion? The Lord willing, in the weeks to come, we'll continue to look at this. But if you get a chance this week, go back through at least Matthew 5, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount and see how important what it means to be human is 
to what Jesus is saying. It's incredibly important. And as citizens of the kingdom, in our worldview, we must say that human beings are made in the image of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you did make us. You created us, you knit us together in our mother's wombs, and you have sustained us from the time we were born into infancy, uh, being toddlers and beyond, and you're still with us. And while we may groan as we get older and our bodies no longer function the way that we wish they would, you're still here with us. We bear your image. You have called us. You've given us callings. You call us to worship you. That everything we do, we do it to your glory. But we live in a world that says the very opposite. That on every hand seeks to deny the reality of who we are. And like it or not, we are often influenced. We breathe in that air. May we be renewed in our understanding that in fact, we are made in your image. And now we are being recreated in the image of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you sent your son who did so many amazing things, but if nothing else, showed us what it means to be a human being. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.